Well, welcome to Sisterhood. We have been studying the book of James this semester, and I hope that you have been blessed um, by digging into God's word together. Last week, we looked at the first half of James chapter 3, and we learned that James refers to the tongue as a restless evil. He says that the tongue itself is actually untamable. But ultimately, what we learned from the first half of James chapter 3 is that what comes out of our mouths is actually just a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. Our tongues are an outward expression of an inward condition that's already happening. And as we head into the second half of James 3, this isn't a separate subject, it's building off of what James was speaking about in the first half of of the chapter. Today might feel like a little bit easier topic because we're gonna be talking about wisdom. And I think all of us desire wisdom. In fact, I have never heard someone say to me, you know what, I have enough wisdom. I don't need any more. You can keep all your wisdom because me, I'm good. No, I think all of us ask for wisdom on a regular basis because we're constantly dealing with hard things, are we not? And for me, it's not even just a regular basis, it's often an hour by hour basis because most of the time through this life, I really don't feel like I have any idea what I'm doing. And I need him to speak to me, I need his guidance. And so we're gonna jump right in to the first half of James 3.13 and he says this, who among you is wise and understanding? This word wise is the Greek word sophos. And when he was speaking to them, he knew that they would understand that this Greek word sophos was actually the same word that they used to refer to Christian teachers and Jewish theologians. So if you remember from the very beginning of James 3, James is talking about teachers, pastors, those who carry a platform, and the tremendous responsibility that goes with that, and that those who carry a platform and teach are actually held to a greater accountability and a stricter judgment before God because of the influence they carry. So for James to carry this theme through chapter three makes complete sense to me. The second word that he says is understanding. Understanding is defined this way, thoroughly knowledgeable, from gaining understanding over long-term personal acquaintance. It emphasizes understanding that results from building on previous knowledge, which supports the next stage of understanding. So essentially what James is saying to us is this type of understanding that we're gonna talk about today comes only from an intimate relationship with God himself. When we continue to build on our relationship with God over an extended period of time, we gain a greater level of understanding. In contrast, I think about people that I was close to 20 years ago. We had a good friendship at that point in time, but then our lives took different paths, we went different directions, and the only way that we have kept up at all is via social media. We don't talk on the phone, I don't see some of these people on a regular basis. Now if one of these friends from 20 years ago walked into this room today, I would embrace her, I would be happy to see her, and I would still refer to her as my friend. But the level of understanding I have about her would not have increased. It would have stayed stagnant from 20 years ago or just the little bits that she would choose to share over social media. 
And I think some of us actually do this in our relationship with God. We accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, and he calls us friend. But the only intimacy that we have in our relationship with him is actually based on what we hear from a pulpit on Sundays or in sisterhood midweek. And it's not an intimate level of understanding. We're not spending one-on-one time with him. And if we are only drawing intimacy with God through someone else's relationship and manna, then we're not actually drawing closer to him. That doesn't mean there isn't benefit. There is absolute benefit in being in a, in a group like sisterhood and being part of a body on the weekends, but that is not the level of intimacy that God calls us to. He desires to call us close friend. Now, in order for us to have a friendship with somebody, it has to go two directions. I can want to be your friend all day long, but if you don't answer my phone calls and return my text messages, and if I see you in the lobby and you turn and go the other way, no matter how badly I want to be your friend, we're not going to be friends, because if you don't want to talk to me, there's nothing I can do about that. The beauty of the relationship with the Father is that he has clearly communicated to us through his word that he desires that intimacy with us. So he's already done his part. That means that it's my part to step into that. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. That is a promise that we can stand on. When we search for God, he promises that we will find him and that we will draw closer to him. He is not a God that is far off. He is not hiding from you. That doesn't mean that he always speaks loudly and clearly. (laughs) There's a big difference. But if you open his word and you pursue intimacy, we have a God that desires relationship with us and this is the foundation for wisdom and understanding that he's speaking to in the book of James. We are individually responsible for seeking this intimacy and the level of wisdom and understanding we grow in is in direct relationship to the level of our intimacy with God. You desire wisdom and understanding, make sure that you're being intentional about your time with him. Okay, the second half of verse 13 says this, by his good conduct he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. James is basically saying Don't tell me you are wise, show me. Let your works do the talking. And he's saying that if we are truly wise and understanding, it's gonna be shown when our good works are done in gentleness. Some translations even say humility. Now we talked about these good works, if you remember in chapter two, where we learned that our, our works are evidence of a life of faith. We're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith, but if we have faith without works, our faith is useless, if you recall that. So James is now letting us know in these verses that these good works done in gentleness are evidence of wisdom. And since we know from James 1.5 that if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to all, we know that God is wisdom, he is the source of wisdom. And so if our good works are the evidence of our faith in God, and God is wisdom, then it makes sense that these good works would also be evidence of wisdom. The one word in this entire equation that makes my head tweak a little bit is the word gentleness. Because I typically don't think about gentleness when I think about wisdom. 
Strong's Concordance says this Greek word gentleness is derived from the same root word meaning meek. And meekness is gentle strength which expresses power with reserve and gentleness. For the believer, meekness, gentle force, begins with the Lord's inspiration and finishes by his direction and empowerment. It is a divinely balanced virtue that can only operate through faith. Okay, I think as women, we really struggle with how to be gentle and not appear weak. And we see this all throughout our culture. In women's empowerment and the Me Too movement, it is everywhere. But when I reframe my thinking of gentleness to actually be a gentle force, I recognize that gentleness doesn't just mean that I back down or back off. The gentleness that God is asking us to step into is confidence that if he has called us to do it, we don't have to force our way into the situation. You see, when God has asked something of us, we're stepping into obedience. And we don't have to beat it over somebody's head. We don't have to try to make it happen. We don't have to try to manipulate and twist things to get our way. If God has spoken it in his word or to our hearts, then we can just step into that obedience and we don't have to force it. That's his responsibility to bring it to pass. And so this gentleness that he's talking about isn't backing down. It's stepping in with a gentle confidence that the one who called me to do it is faithful. And when we really believe that he is faithful to accomplish all that he has asked, we don't have to force open anything. We don't have to force people to do things our way. This does not mean that when we step into obedience, things are gonna go the way we want them to. And you need to hear that because we are living in a fallen and broken world. And just because God asked you to have the hard conversation doesn't mean that that person is all of a sudden going to have just a change of mind and everything's going to be great. That's not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. My responsibility is to obey and step into it. His responsibility is to take care of what happens from there. Gentleness is not conflict avoidance. Jesus didn't avoid hard things. Jesus stepped into hard things on a regular basis. And in our Minnesota nice culture, we often equate godliness with timidity. We don't wanna say anything. We don't wanna offend somebody. We don't wanna stir the pot. And I think Jesus stirred a lot of pots for the sake of moving the gospel forward. This doesn't mean that we step in just to cause trouble or stir things up just because we like to see something happen? Absolutely not. But sometimes the things that God asks of us, the steps of obedience he asks us to take, they are going to naturally stir things up and they're not always gonna be easy. Jesus didn't shy away from hard things. And ladies, I firmly believe that he has gifted each and every one of us with the strength to do what he has called us to do. I tell my girls this all the time, I have three teenage girls, and I say to them, you can do hard things. I know that this is hard, I know it's a tough day, I know you don't feel good, I know she wasn't nice to you, I know that she deserves you to pay evil for evil, but guess what, you can do hard things. And sometimes I have to say that to myself, I can do hard things because he strengthens me. 
So why is gentleness attached to wisdom? Proverbs 19.2 says, even zeal isn't good without knowledge. Now I think about when I first got saved, I was 17, a senior year in high school, and I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And I had a lot of dysfunction from my past and abuse that I had to work through. So when I got saved, it was a radical change. I went from being depressed and suicidal to free rather quickly. And it, there, was a lot of, a long, there was a long process in some of that, but I had tremendous amounts of zeal at that point in time because I wanted everybody to experience the freedom that I was experiencing. And I can remember my mom looking at me one day and saying, you know what, nobody wants to be around you because you push God on people. And those words hurt. And I'm not saying that my mom was in any way right in what she said. But what I recognize now is that at that point in time, I was operating in zeal that did not yet have the gentleness that comes with wisdom. The problem is that some of us, we get to the point where we have the gentleness that comes with wisdom, but we forgot about the zeal for God. And this verse does not say that zeal without knowledge is bad. I just totally messed that up. This passage does not say that zeal is bad. It says that zeal without knowledge is bad. And oftentimes we, we shy away from zeal because over time we've forgotten what he's done for us. And the powerful force that comes when we have the gentleness that comes out of wisdom along with zeal for God's house. He does immense things out of that. Okay, verse 14. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. So James is going on to tell us that where bitter envy and selfish ambition exist, this kind of wisdom is demonic. Those are really strong words. And can we just remember for a moment that James is speaking in this letter to the church. And the reality is that the church that James was speaking to they dealt with the exact same issues that our modern day churches deal with today. And so sometimes we can say, oh, you know what, bitter envy and selfish ambition, that's how the world lives. Well, guess what? Just because we got saved doesn't mean that all of our stuff got dealt with at the moment of salvation. We are all a work in progress. And because we are all a work in progress, myself at the top of that list, bitter envy and selfish ambition still exist within us. And if we are not careful and we don't deal with it, then the devil uses believers to accomplish his will. That does not mean you are demon-possessed. It just means that, that sin left unchecked is a weapon the enemy uses. I think oftentimes we normalize the, the words envy and ambition and we say things like, you know what, everybody deals with jealousy, and ambition, that's a good thing because it, it's how I get things done. Like, let's be real. I am the girl that makes it happen. I need that ambition. But James is saying here that bitter envy and selfish ambition actually bring about disorder. 
Because when we're so focused on what we want and when we want it, we can't work in unity within the body of Christ. And everybody's going their own way, doing their own thing, accomplishing their own purpose, rather than coming together and doing what God has asked. So what do bitter envy and selfish ambition look like? Envy is the desire to have something that someone else has and you want. So bitter envy says, not only do I want what you have, but I don't want you to have what you have because I can't have it. I can no longer look at your amazing trip pictures and be happy for you. Instead, I'm becoming critical and judgmental of where you went or how you spent your money or what pictures you put up. And, and instead of being thrilled for you that you got that trip, the jealousy just bubbles up with inside of me. We often think that these mind, these mind conversations that we have to ourselves are not evident to other people. Guess what? That's a lie that we believe. Recently, my daughter has, um, she's 17, and there's been a female adult in her life who hasn't been the nicest to her. And um, by nicest, I mean, if there's a group of teenagers, she'll acknowledge every other teenager but my daughter. She won't include her in things. Um, she doesn't necessarily berate or belittle or say awful things, but the manner and the tone in which she uses around my daughter is different than it is with the other teenagers. And I can only imagine that the woman who has treated my daughter this way thinks that she's fine because she hasn't said anything to her. She's kept her tongue in check. But guess what? My 17-year-old still comes home and she feels it. She feels the way that this woman has treated her and it breaks her heart. And she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand why she's being snubbed. And I think all of us have had those moments where we feel it. We know the other person has a grudge against us or something with us and we don't know why. And in the same respect, I would argue that most, if not all of us, have been the one to do that to someone else. And we think that we're okay because we didn't say the wrong thing. We weren't mean, we kept our mouths in check. But guess what? Because we left bitter envy and selfish ambition unchecked in our hearts, it still wounds people. And it's not only about what we say, but it's about how we carry ourselves, how we respond, and the way other people feel in our presence. Selfish ambition says that I need credit for things. I want the credit, I wanna have the idea, I want everyone to know what a great job I did or how great I am. Godly ambition says, do you know what? If my name is never acknowledged, it's never spoken, but God was glorified, that's good enough. Because I'm not here, it's not my show. It's not for me to get praise, because I'm not worthy of praise, only he is. And this is a normal feeling. I think all of us struggle with this in different areas of our lives. And it's that intentional, constant, you know what, God? Help me to die to myself and lift you up and not constantly feel like I need the credit or that I need my name highlighted because it's not about me 
and it's all about you. So how do we fight against this selfish ambition in our lives? Philippians chapter two, verses three and four says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Ladies, when we feel this bitter envy and selfish ambition rising up, we fight against it by being unselfish. We put the needs of others before our own. This does not mean we become doormats. This does not mean that we don't ever speak up or have the hard conversations for what's right and true. But if you recognize in your heart this aspect of bitter envy and selfish ambition, there may be some areas that the Holy Spirit is clearly asking you to lay your life down down and put others first to fight against that natural feeling, that sinful feeling that is within us. When we don't deal with it, the enemy does his best to use it. Out of the overflow of the heart, our mouths speak. And if we don't deal with these sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions, they will come out. So we've spent some time looking at the fruit of earthly wisdom. Let's look at the fruit of heavenly wisdom. Verse 17 says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Okay, this is a much longer list of things that we're supposed to pay attention to than the first list was, which can feel a little bit overwhelming. But I, wanna, I want you to think about two different things in relation to wisdom. The first one is how do I identify godly wisdom within myself? And then how do I identify godly wisdom within other people? There's one important distinction I wanna make before we go on. This is gonna sound a little off at first, but I want you to think about it. Godly people do not always give godly wisdom because we are human. And I will put myself at the very top of that list. Let's think about Peter in Matthew chapter 16. It says this, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Okay, first of all, Peter is the first disciple to acknowledge and confess that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus gives him major props for that. And he says, Peter, this was only revealed to you from heaven and because of that, you are Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So Jesus is speaking some pretty strong words to Peter at this point in time. Now, from my limited perspective, I would look at Peter and, and say, you know what? He was a godly man. To, to operate in that, to be one of the disciples, I would absolutely call Peter a man of God. Let's look two verses later in this text. It says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things 
from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. So the same man that Jesus says, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church, he is now looking at and saying, get behind me, Satan. Can you just imagine if you said that to your girlfriend this morning? <laughs> I mean, that's insane. You know what, Jesus was not shocked by Peter's response in this second set of verses. Jesus didn't think, oh my gosh, what have I done? I just declared that Peter is the one I was gonna build my church on. How could I have said that? Because now he just gave me awful advice. No. Jesus knows that we are an imperfect people. And Peter went on to write two books in our New Testament that we gain a ton of wisdom from on a regular basis. Sometimes, godly people, we miss it. And this is why it is so important that we don't look at godly people as our source. Sometimes we find it easier to go to someone we consider godly or mature and take their advice or ask for their wisdom before we even ask God's what his is. But James 1 promises us that if we ask God for his wisdom, he will provide it. Now, I'm not discounting godly wisdom. I am a benefit of it on a regular basis. I have people in my life that speak into my life, and I am thankful for that wisdom. But that wisdom isn't my first place of check-in. My first place should be at the feet of Jesus, asking him to speak to me. And the godly wisdom I receive from those that he has placed in my life and that I benefit from is there to help me make sure that I'm on track and that I'm not missing it and that, that I'm on the right page. Does that make sense? So James has given us this list of what godly wisdom looks like and how we can identify it. And the first thing that he says about it is he says that it's pure. Now this purity of wisdom is in direct contrast to the bitter envy and selfish ambition that we just talked about. Pure wisdom cannot come out of an impure heart. It just can't. You can't take and extract the fresh water out of your dirty water. And sometimes we hear someone else's wisdom and we wanna regurgitate it as our own because we wanna sound good or look good or have the right thing to say. But if we're not speaking out of a pure heart, then the wisdom that we're sharing is already not real wisdom. I don't even know that we could call it wisdom. So how do we determine whether or not our hearts are pure? I think there's a few questions we can ask ourselves. Are the words that I'm about to share with someone because I want to sound smart or look good? Are the words that I'm about to share because I'm uncomfortable not having an answer to the question or the challenge that's right in front of me? Sometimes we're just not super comfortable with not knowing what to say. And it's okay to not have all the answers. We're not meant to be Jesus to someone else. We're meant to point them to Jesus. 
Does what I am about to say truly feel prompted by the Holy Spirit? More than often than not, we cannot identify whether or not the wisdom someone else shares is out of a pure heart. That's between them and the Lord. It's our responsibility to make sure that we are speaking out of a pure heart, that we're dealing with our stuff before the feet of the Father. James goes on to say that this wisdom is peace-loving, it's gentle, it's compliant, it's full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering and without pretense, and for the sake of time, I'm not gonna break all of those down for you. But wisdom that comes out of a pure heart after we've spent time with Jesus and asked him to give us his wisdom will naturally show these qualities and characteristics. James has given us a clear picture of what godly wisdom looks like. And he said, if, we're our, if we are wise, it's gonna be proven by our conduct. It's not gonna be motivated by selfishness or bitter envy. And it, won't, it will be delivered with the humility that comes from knowing that God is the one who provides us with that wisdom. James ends with saying, those who love peace will cultivate peace. If you cultivate something, you nurture, promote, and encourage it. So if you love peace and you want peace in your life, then seek the wisdom God gives and nurture it. Godly wisdom will be peaceful. But it doesn't mean it's always going to feel peaceful. We live in a broken world and sometimes we're gonna say things that stir things up and are hard to hear. But it's so that people walk in peace, so that they experience the peace that comes from being in right relationship with God. And we can walk in peace in circumstances that are not peaceful. Sow seeds of wisdom in your own heart and the hearts of those around you. And James says, when you do this, you will reap the fruit of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, that you are the giver of wisdom. And God, that you give us full access to you, Lord. I thank you that you didn't reserve wisdom for just a select few, but that we all have access to sit at your feet and learn from you and be challenged and encouraged by your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, for every woman listening to this teaching, Father, that we would each be challenged to develop understanding that only comes from sitting at your feet over an extended period of time, Lord, hearing your voice. We thank you for this word and for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.